0: Tom Morges. Welcome back everyone to another broadcast of In The Trenches. I'm very excited to have on today's show, Marshall Van Alstyne, who is the Professor and Chair of Information Systems Department at Boston University and a research associate at the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. He's also the co-author of Platform Revolution and he's written for Harvard Business Review. And interesting note, sidebar, uh, we were talking before the call, one of his articles, Strategies for Two-Sided Markets, was written back in 2006 and has sold over 60,000 copies and is still continuing to sell today. So again, a remarkable piece of, uh, of, of of writing from Marshall and kind of leads us into the topic of platforms and what we'll be talking about today. But Marshall, thank you so much for being on the call with us.
1: You no, know, Tom, it's my great pleasure. I've seen a couple of your other podcasts on here, so uh, honored to be on for the first time.
0: Awesome, great. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into, uh, you know, being a professor? And then uh, specifically, I, I'm very fascinated by the idea of platforms and how you how you come about uh, going into that area of of e commerce and and internet business and and all that.
1: Well, I got to say it was a little bit of a circuitous route. I bounced around a lot. So for those finally looking to do some interesting things, I think trying a lot of different experiments will uh, will help out. I started in computer science and programming and so building things, but that also helps to understand modularity a bit. Um, then uh, I was actually involved in studying internet commerce a bit when the dot-com bomb and dot-com boom happened. It was really interested in what some of the business models uh, worked. So we tried computer science and tried a couple other things to understand what had happened. A close friend of mine and colleague had been interested in many of the same questions. And so we tried to figure out what was happening with the dot-com bomb and boom, and that was one of the things that eventually led to the Harvard Business Review article. Um, Also subsequently studied some economics and then did some strategy consulting to try to figure out systems of value and how these things work and so we could put price tags on them. So uh, that led back to school and to figure out why things actually happened and um, wound up here.
0: That's awesome. So you got to experience uh, firsthand being involved in the the boom bust of the – uh, the internet back in the early two thousands.
1: Oh, absolutely. A bunch of my buddies were dropping out of college, and I'd say you know most of them were not making any money, but a handful made uh, a ton of money. The thing that shocked me at the time is even faculty members were dropping out of college. Uh, one of those actually sold off an auction company to eBay. I think he did really well.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. So back then, were was this concept of platforms uh, like a reality? Like, was that something that was even in at the outset of? When we had this big boom, were people developing platforms kind of as we see them today?
1: You know, that's a fascinating question because I think it was implicit. I don't think folks were actually as explicit in understanding the mechanisms behind platform growth and why they operate as they do. Remember, there were a lot of trial and error and a lot of failed experiments in 2000, 2001. I mean, that's why we had the NASDAQ going up 80% and then it crashed horribly. Mm. Uh, And I think uh, a lot of the firms tried a lot of different things and didn't figure out what was work. Um, I mean, one of the things that might be fun to cover this morning is when does free work? When do the free business models actually make money, and what uh, and when are you going to lose your shirt? In contrast, uh, that's the kind of thing that we looked at. I'd say back in 2000, 2001, folks weren't really clear on the concept of platforms. Uh, Microsoft got it right, but even Steve Jobs with Apple got it wrong. You could see they had what two three percent market share at the time. That's mm. uh, incredible. So even you know geniuses like Jobs had not completely figured it out. He got it right ten, fifteen years later.
0: That's awesome. Okay, so let's dive into it today uh, and where it's where it's come to today and how we can apply that. So I am curious about maybe we start with that that concept of when does free work? Because I'm sure you've seen the the show Silicon Valley and. And, and kind of heard about this, uh, you know, paid attention in, in this space. It's interesting. I, I see this stuff. Uh, there's a reference in Silicon Valley where he talks about, no, you want to be pre-revenue. Because if you're pre-revenue, you can get these huge valuations. But as soon as you start to make money, those go away. So I think it's kind of, obviously, it's tongue in cheek. Um, there might be some truth to it. But t- take us through, like, when does free actually work?
1: Oh, great question. So I think the pre-revenue question is also interesting. Really what you're trying to do is to drive users and engagement. Let me give you four simple uh, occasions when the free really works. Uh, the first and most obvious, and I'd call it the Coke model or the addictive model. That's when you have games and folks will try it, get engaged in it, and then they'll want to upgrade or sell the compliments, you know, some of the in-game purchases. Uh, the second model is selling upgrades. So you try the basic version, and then you try the professional version. A standard ver- uh, example of that is LinkedIn in professional services. So you get a professional network for free, and then if you want to do more email, you want to get, uh, you know, the analytics, or you want to reach folks recruiting, then you have to pay for the upgrade and service. Uh, the third one to think about is the complement model. Uh, it's the razors and blades, or the cell phones and minutes. So you might give away. Uh, a handle in order to sell more uh, razors. They might give away cell phones for cheap in order to sell more minutes, but those are strict complements. The fourth, which is the most subtle and most complex, is the two-sided network effects model. In this case, you're giving away something to one community in order to drive creation and content consumption of a different community. But uh, your, your intuition is probably on target. Let me give you a great example. Suppose you're running a bar and you run ladies' night. How do you discount the market? Well, you discount to the women in order that you can pull in the men, and then you're going to charge them for the drink. So you're giving away to one side of the market in order to charge more for the other side of the market. We see this in a number of different cases. So firms give away access to APIs, application, program interface, or so they give away SDKs in order to drive consumption, uh, sorry, in order to drive production of new content. Um, LinkedIn gives away free service in order to be able to charge. Recruiters or Google gives away uh, access to lots of these activities in order to be able to charge advertisers. This is a giveaway to one group in order to charge more and drive um, participation of another group. That one is based dramatically on network effects. As you get more uh, participation on one side, you get more participation on the other side, you get more and it feeds back upon itself. Uh, other examples are giving away initial free rides to attract riders to Uber which will bring in more drivers, which brings in more riders, which brings in more drivers. It's really the feedback mechanisms that you're trying to get, which goes back to what you're talking about uh, with the pre-revenue and getting users engaged before you really start char- charging a great deal. So it's those four models that are really the ones that work.
0: Awesome. So, and can you go back to number one? That was the one I, and you mentioned, I think the Coke model, is that right? And can you explain yeah, that one again?
1: Cocaine is addiction. Cocaine. Right. So, so it's the drug model or the the drug, the the drug pushers give you the free sample to get you hooked and then they get you up on the, uh, on the drug. So, uh, that's the addiction model. Okay. Uh, Again, games are classic examples of that. They give you the freebie version of it and they want to sell you, uh, online services or in-game purchases or things like that.
0: Sure. And that's become, uh, uh, hundreds of millions dollar, uh, industry, if not billions, the, the, it's huge. I think it's amazing.
1: I think if you look at the you know the top free apps on either the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store, uh, all of them are dominated by… Um, free the games. games.
0: Yeah, they aren't free, though. It. And when you have Arnold Schwarzenegger as an advertiser for them, you know somebody's making money somewhere.
1: <laughs> They're making a killing. They're making an absolute killing on it. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so this is interesting, but
0: so but, but what's important here is of these four models, the the cocaine model, um, the the upgrade model, the razor and blades model, and the network effect model. If I'm gonna you know come up with little terms here or something like that for them, uh, is that the 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 last one, the network effect model, is it's it's all about its its basis is that there's going to be kind of two two. Um, two types of users, I guess you could say? Is that the way to, to define it? Like, Because Uber, there's critical. the driver, and then there's the person who, who pays the ride. Like, How do we look at this?
1: It's actually one of the most important insights in developing platform business models. Almost any interaction you have on these platforms has two sides. So on dating sites, it's men and women. Um, you know, On Uber, it's riders and drivers. On Airbnb, it's hosts and guests. On uh, gaming Uh, systems, it's content creators and content consumers. On YouTube, it's content creators and content consumers. On Twitter, it's those people that tweet and those people that read the tweets. So every interaction has two sides. Once you see that, it gives you the leverage to try to create the tools or the incentives for one side to participate or create, which then brings in the other side, who will then consume and participate, or vice versa. This also then leads into the launch strategies: how do you get these things going? But it's managing those interactions on platform of these two sides, these two sided network effects in every instance, if you can get one side to participate in such a way that it pulls the other side on, which pulls more of the first side, which pulls more of the second side, you get a feedback and that's when you really take off.
0: Yeah. I find this fascinating. Um, have real quick. So sidebar, and I, I this might be putting you on the spot here. Have you ever, do you know of any stories of, of these type of platforms that, uh, Maybe had a you know great concept, uh, understood the two key like uh, sides uh, of of the of the platform, um, and yet failed to grow because of how they approach one side or the other. Because it sounds like to me that there's got to be some kind of balance in terms of how we recruit um, both sides. And so I'm just curious if there's any famous like total crash and burn examples. Because I see I see the the successes Uber, Airbnb, Etsy. Uh, I mean, there's hundreds of others. I'm just curious if there's any that come to mind for you that were like, these failed, but it had great potential.
1: So let me give you two stories on that. One uh, was a jobs creation site that kind of piggybacked on uh, Facebook, and they went viral, which was brilliant. They got a lot of folks on board, but they didn't get the engagement. They were going to try to sell jobs uh, on top of that. So they bribed people to participate. They got huge engagement, and they got folks to spread across the platform, uh, but they didn't manage to get the other side. They didn't manage to get the jobs, and it eventually collapsed. Folks just disappeared. The engagement didn't happen. Um, So that's an example of a failure. Let me give you another example, which leads in some ways to the monetization uh, of a great company that initially didn't understand it, but then they got it right. This was a couple of guys that came to my office about 18 months ago, and they had read the work on Two Sided, and they're trying to figure out how to get the network effects going. And it's great, because I know you feature a lot of stuff on marketing, for example. So these were a couple of guys who were setting up a new marketing platform for the major corporations. How do you find an agency? Because there, there isn't a rating and review system for ad agencies um, in the same way there is for Amazon products or eBay sellers. At the same time, how does an ad agency go connect with a big company? They were going to create a marketplace for this. And they came and they were on their way to the VC guys. So how do you price this? Should we charge the big companies to list on the site or should we charge the ad agencies to list on the site? Great question. Are you going to discount to one side or the other? Answer, neither one. The problem is that if you charge either side, you're putting friction on participation in the marketplace. So if you charge ad agencies, they won't bid on the jobs because they don't necessarily know they're going to get them. If you charge the big companies, they're not going to list the jobs, which keeps the transactions off platform. What you do in that case is you charge for the completed transactions. So you take a transactions cut or transactions fee after the fact. In some sense, the guys had actually intuited this because they'd already been using web crawlers to pull addresses and firms from both sides of the platform on in order to create profiles and facilitate the matches. So in that case, you want to charge the transactions cut after the fact so it kind of feels free because the business is going to happen at that point. But there's a second layer that you could do. You could then take, you know, suppose six companies bid on the job and only one get the opportunity. Five miss the job. Then what you do is you go to those five companies and you ask them, can I sell you business analytics, which would have made your bid more competitive? Well, no, they're interested. And what happens is their um, bids become more competitive the next time around. So you're facilitating new interactions taking place as opposed to putting frictions on uh, initial interactions taking place. You have to use your monetization strategy to facilitate network effects and transactions rather than put friction on those interactions.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So so take me through this concept then of, you know, I, I, I don't know if we've kind of defined this yet, but the idea of network effect versus virality. Um, how are the two different? Uh, I think maybe a lot of people might think that they're similar or that uh, maybe there's some crossover between how they actually work and, and what's the importance of each or, or definitely what's the importance of network effect versus virality?
1: That's a really important and settling question. So let's define a network effect as users creating value for other users. Now, this could be either intentional, such as Amazon reviews or sharing, or it could be unintentional. For example, Amazon uh, and Netflix and Google analyze your behavior in order to make the next interaction better for the next user. So that's users creating value for other users. That's as you participate on the platform, each interaction becomes more and more valuable. Virality, in contrast, is using existing users to pull non-users onto the platform. So you want to bring them on in some way. Um, One of my favorite examples of that, you need to understand how virality works. I I want to give credit to a friend and colleague, he's co-author on the book, is actually Sangeep Chowdhury on this. He has a great description of, if you want to get virality to work, think of the anatomy of a sneeze. You need four components on that. You need the host, who's infected already. You need the target, who is it that you actually are trying to reach? You need the germ of an idea that you want to spread and you need a medium on which to spread it. You need all of those things in order to pull more folks on. A wonderful example of using virality in the right way is Open Table. When you make a reservation, they invite you to then include the information of your friends and associates who will be meeting you at the dinner reservation. They then use this to invite the friends and give them the time and the location. You're motivated to make their life easier you share the information in a way that helps them and helps yourself, and everyone wins. It's a great example of pulling a non user onto the platform to help them become a user. But again, network effects are users creating value for users that are on platform, whereas virality is pulling non users onto the platform to help them become users.
0: Is there some, is it basically kind of a requirement then, that there is some form of virality for every type of actual platform or two sided marketplace? Like, is that? Um, or like, I'm just curious, like, is it a like requirement or is it just like an ideal? Like we aspire to being viral, we aspire to being able to pull people onto it, or is that actually like a requirement for a successful and sustainable two-sided business model?
1: So I'd say that network effects are required. Those really do matter. Once you get things going, you really need to find ways for users to create value for other users. Why would that be the case? Think about what happens when you scale. The more users you get, the more value they're creating for each other. The more users you get, that means you're going to get incredibly powerful barriers to entry. It's going to be very difficult. Imagine how difficult it is now for someone else to uh, compete with Facebook or someone else to compete with uh, eBay uh, or someone else to compete with uh, Airbnb or Uber once they get out there. Right? Once you get these network effects going, it's incredibly powerful. Virality is essential for getting going. It's, again, pulling the non-users onto the platform. But once you've got them there, you need to keep them there and engage. So I would say the network effect is the more important of the two where the virality is essential to the growth strategy.
0: I love it. Okay, so now talk talk to me about uh, the concept of launch and launching um, a, a platform. How do we go about doing that? And it's interesting. I, I will say this as a sidebar. I do um, – I run – I cook. Co-founded a, a veterans business um, mastermind where we we help veterans start and grow businesses. And one of the guys that we had in the program was trying to create a marketplace. And I remember telling him from the beginning, I was like, "You are diving into the deep end uh, to the probably the most difficult thing I can think of software-wise to build because of the nature of of what's involved here, right?" And um and and he and basically kind of got off to a wrong foot because I think the launch like he didn't really not once we got it built, he had the framework built. It was tough. He had some great ideas to recruit users. And to create that kind of network effect, uh, the viral component was a little more difficult. Um, but ultimately, the launch was kind of a dud. And I and I think to myself, like, what could, a, could what we could what could we have done differently? So I'm curious if there's any standards um, or any framework that somebody who's starting a platform like this could could use or leverage to make sure their platform is successful right from the get-go.
1: Well, Tom, first hats off to you for helping out the vets and getting things going. I think it's really noble in helping to make that work. But you've also identified one of the toughest nuts to crack in all the platform launch issues is really uh, what, the, you know, what the community usually calls the chicken and egg problem. <clears throat> how do you get users if you don't have content? How do you have content if you don't get users? Or if you, how do you get drivers if you don't have writers? And how do you get writers if you don't have drivers? That chicken and egg problem in a market with network effects is really hard to launch. So for your community, let me <clears throat> pose an initial question just to help you think about it. And then I want to give you a bunch of different strategies. So the thought puzzle is, should you go broad and try to enable lots of diverse kinds of interactions, or should you go deep and focus really narrowly? I like to raise this question because this is something raised by the chief strategy officer for Alibaba. He's now, you know, was the largest IPO in history. And they completely admit to having screwed it up the first time around. How would you go about it? You know, going, and these are the good guys. They've, they've succeeded. So do you go broad, enabling lots of interactions, or... Uh, narrow enabling a couple of critical ones. Well, the guy's name is, is Ming Zhang. Again, he's chief strategy officer for Alibaba. And he says, You really have to go narrow. You have to start with one interaction with one killer app. He calls it the killer app paradox. By, by that, he means basically you're risking everything on one, but if you don't get that to work, then you're really in trouble. Whereas if you spread it lot broadly, you hope to enable lots of interactions. But the problem is, Not one of them actually ever provides a compelling value proposition so folks don't switch from what they're otherwise doing. So start with the minimum viable platform, which is exactly one interaction, and you make it really good. It's like Steve Jobs' iPod. You own it, you control it, you make it insanely great. Start there. So start with one interaction and do a really, really, really good job of that. Let me give you like six or seven different launch strategies. So let me just give you a couple of names and, and we can go back into them. So um, there's a piggyback strategy, a marquee strategy, a seeding strategy, uh, a micro market strategy, um, a single side strategy, a couple of others. Let me, let me see if I can go into some of these and show you how they work. Okay. Piggybacking is taking an existing network and borrowing their network effects. If you can use their user base to get yours going, that will really help. Great examples of that are Airbnb piggybacking on Craigslist as they launched. Um, they, they, They advertised there, they pulled some of the users off, and they created a much, much better interface to get user engagement. So you can start with an existing network. Another one is Square piggybacking on The credit card network, it was already an existing network that attached right directly in and made it very easy. Facebook piggybacked on email systems and got going that way. Another one is the marquee strategy. Can you find someone who's really big in an area that will pull a community behind it when it joins your platform? You may have to reward them in order to get them on, but um, good examples are Microsoft using Halo Uh, for first-person shooter games or EA Sports for pulling on large user bases for sports activities. So if you can find someone that has their own community and convince them to join you, they can pull their community with you. Another one is seeding strategy. What great content can you place there initially in order for users to start engaging with you? A couple of great examples of that. Google launched Android. It seeded the market by getting by offering five million dollars in prizes for the best productivity apps, the best entertainment apps, the best um, you know search uh, and social apps, and it created some wonderful initial content which pulled in users, which then brought in more developers, which pulled in users. It got the seed going. Um, another example is when uh, Adobe launched uh, Acrobat Reader. One of the most successful things it did was to convince the federal government to post all tax documents as PDF files. That was a great um, content-sharing strategy. It was a win-win-win for users, the government, and Adobe. All of a sudden, you could get your tax documents without having to go to the library uh, instantly. The government saved massive amounts on printing and postage, um, and and, uh, Adobe won because now all of a sudden the user base became... The entire tax-paying population. So it was a really interesting example of seeding the content. Another one is to launch on a particular side of the market and then open to become a platform. Good examples that you might probably recognize, Amazon started by owning the inventory for books before it opened to a marketplace, first allowing other people to sell their own books and then opening as a marketplace to allow others to sell almost anything on there. So now almost all kinds of organizations can set up shop on top of the Amazon platform. So they started as a reseller of other people's goods and then opened one side of the market to others in order to participate and reach their customers. So you start narrowly with one. OpenTable did something analogous. When it was going, it provided seat and reservation software to restaurants at a really cheap discount relative to other reservation systems once it had the reservations, uh, the restaurants locked in, it could open to users in order to start the reservation. So going narrow and then opening to the other side. Um, Another one is the micro market strategy. This is consistent with that Ming Zheng observation of starting with a really narrow interaction. Micro market is starting in such a small community that you can almost guarantee a valuable interaction. Facebook started it harvard uh, and then it opened to ivy league and then it opened to dot com it went from one to another to another starting in a really focused marketplace where it could have very um, powerful interactions most folks may not remember but ebay started with something really narrow it started with pez dispensers you know things that you could sell out of your attic a uh, really small uh, marketplace um One last one that's often used by uh, larger corporations is what uh, Intel calls the follow the rabbit strategy. You open your system and then make a couple of partners successful and showcase those partners to other companies. This is a strategy that Intel used when launching the USB standard and the the Wi-Fi standards. It actually got several partners um, and it helped make them successful on those standards, showcasing that and then bringing other people into the ecosystem. That's half a dozen different launch strategies um, uh, that are out there. There are even a couple of more. I mean, if you really want full details, of course, we've got a whole chapter on that in the book, Platform Revolution. So I encourage you to either come to us or take a look at that as ways to really get off the ground. This is awesome.
0: Okay. I Everybody who's listening needs to go out and buy that book. Uh, go ahead and do that now because... Those are the kind of things where it's like I think worthwhile to sit down and read through and really uh, understand uh, these different types of launches because I mean how powerful can that be if you apply the right strategy to your your platform? But also how disastrous could it be if you uh, maybe apply the wrong one to your your business? Um, I not necessarily that there is a wrong one per se, but it, what's interesting here is I definitely took away some notes from some of these and I thought what was like I think you mentioned I think for the micro market. You mentioned that you can almost guarantee a great interaction, if I captured that correctly.
1: That is correct. Yes.
0: So, so these are the kind of things where if I I look at it from the perspective of say a bootstrapper, somebody who's like you know small business owner, um, doesn't have maybe the funding of uh, a Silicon Valley startup, how they can apply these kind of things. And you look at this and you say, well, it might be really difficult to go and recruit the federal government to use your software, right? For the for the you know you kind of need some something established or some kind of connections. But something like this, the micro market approach could be very, very applicable within reach. And because of that little asterisk right there, you can almost guarantee a great interaction, kind of a great place to start. So I'm curious, based on these different launch uh, strategies, you know, how does the business owner uh, up, approach these and say, you know, this is the one I want to go with? Uh, is there a way to kind of evaluate what's the right one for the right circumstance? Or do you kind of just have to understand each one and kind of figure it out?
1: Ooh, excellent, uh, excellent insight. Um, So one of the things you might want to do would be to apply a lot of the same techniques that uh, Steve Blank and uh, Eric Rice and others teach in the Lean Startup. So first, posit what you think some of the interactions are likely to be that are most valuable and go ask your users. From the interaction that you're proposing or the value proposition that you're offering, go test it. Uh, You can often test it really cheaply without having to blow out the whole product suite or the whole product. Use mock-ups, use interviews, use the lean startup techniques of surveying uh, real interactions and see if this is the best one. Or if you can identify from your users some other pain point that isn't being addressed, go service that. What's What's the biggest, deepest, broadest pain point that they're experiencing? And see if you can provide that and then go adjacent interaction after adjacent interaction after adjacent interaction.
0: I like it. Okay, great. <clears throat> so now I want to talk a little bit about uh, about monetization. Um, we've already kind of covered that a little bit—the free freemium and the different models there. Um, you know, again, looking at these different types of launches, is it where does the where does pricing fit in to these launch strategies? Because I'm guessing it's not definitely an afterthought. I would assume it's integral to the launch itself. How do we know whether we, uh, whether we again? I guess how do we look at both the launch strategy and the, the types of pricing where we had like the different models that you discussed, um, like and and how do we apply the right pricing to the right model? Again, very ambiguous, difficult question, but I'm curious if there's a way to think about that maybe and approach it.
1: Oh, Tom, this is a great way to connect your earlier observation about pre-money valuations versus post-money valuations. One of the biggest mistakes folks make is to ask first where do we make money and then build the platform as opposed to asking where do we build the platform then how do we make the money start with that question the real question is first what's the best interaction you can provide what's the best experience you can provide what are the layered interactions you can provide then ask the question of where you make the money again tying back to the earlier observation we want to ask you know, we want to apply a mechanism which allows us to minimize Friction on the interaction when we try to monetize. We can't do that until we understand the nature of the interactions themselves. So, first focus on the interactions, then focus on the monetization strategy. Um, We've seen a number of failures. Matter of fact, especially in the big companies, that's where they really screw it up. They say, This is our existing product line, this is where we're going to make money, and they try to build a product around that. But they put all kinds of friction on actually interacting with users when if they First ask the users what they want to do, enable that, and then figure out where they're going to make money. That's a much better plan. One of the best examples of a corporation uh, making this mistake is that SAP at one point had been trying to charge for each of the different portions of its ecosystem. It was charging developers for participation, it was charging them for quality control, it was charging them for listing. Interviews with the developer community revealed immense amount of frustration with charging friction, all these different points. They moved the pricing down to a couple of key intervention points, and uh, the participation took off. It was a really wonderful example of pulling back on the pricing models and figuring out where to reduce the friction on the proper interactions in order to get content creation and content consumption on the platform.
0: I love it. Awesome! Wow. So some seriously good stuff here. Um, and, and again, I'm sure that what people need to do is check out the book, read through the book. There's a lot of stuff to consume there. Beyond that, I'm curious. Uh, you know, beyond the book, or or or, and not not necessarily that we need to think about beyond the book, but like after I read it and I start to understand this stuff, is there any anything else you recommend in terms of somebody who's like interested in this topic, interested in you know building a platform or learning about that? that you recommend uh, to check out, obviously starting with the book, but it also seems like kind of a broad thing. A book is a great start, but are there any programs you recommend, any, any, any avenues that way to kind of help people facilitate the development of their platform?
1: Oh, um, thanks. I think there are a couple of things. So one, of course, I think Platform Revolution, the book, is just out, so that's a great place to start. Uh, a second place to start is that we run a conference on platform design every July. Uh, You can check out platforms.mit.edu for an executive and industrial version on how to do it. There's also the latest research at platforms.bu.edu. Both of those are great sites to do that. Uh, For startup in general, I strongly recommend some of the other things that you're, you know, intimately familiar with. I'm sure uh, the Lean Startup Materials is another great uh, source Mm -hmm. of activity. But also, uh, I encourage your community to reach out. Um, They're able to reach me at InfoEcon on Twitter. Um, is a and I'm very happy to interact with, with users. And heck, I learn as much from uh, the community as perhaps they learn from me. So I'm really looking forward to furthering the conversation.
0: That's awesome. So before I close it up, um, and I want to give you uh, the floor of two things. One, any closing thoughts on the topic of of platforms, um, whether on launches, monetization, or anything like that. And then um, you've already mentioned the book, but yeah, again, another chance to, to ping or plug people or plug the book and let people know where to find it.
1: So two thoughts. Um, One of them is that I think we can actually articulate a lot of the principles for platform design. Now, in in fact, a lot of successful platforms have done by accident, but they've had the virtue of experimentation without too many different competitors. If you're in a market space with competitors, it really helps to understand the principles of monetization, of launch, uh, of governance, of um, uh, ecosystems design. Uh, The second point is, again, with a competition, in markets with network effects, because users are creating value for users, you tend to get these winner-take-all effects. You tend to get these huge firms uh, and strong market concentration in operating systems. Microsoft has 90% of desktop. Google now has 80% of mobile. Uh, If you look at e-commerce, Alibaba has 80% of all e-commerce transactions in China. Uh, If you look at social networks, Facebook has 1.6 billion users. Uh, Airbnb and Uber are becoming completely dominant. If you can learn how to control the network effects, you can steer the community toward these winner-take-all markets. Again, it, it's something that Peter Thiel calls these you know, one or zero monopolies, uh, and you can really actually manipulate these. And we hope we can actually help you get there in the right way.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much, Marshall, for being on In the Trenches. I thought it was a very fascinating conversation. I'm excited to dig more deeply into Platform Revolution. Check out the book. And again, for those who are listening, go check out the book. It's on Amazon right now platform revolution and what's cool is we've on the in the trenches we've already interviewed uh sanjit and uh understood kind of or talked about the concepts of platform so i think this takes it to a more even more practical level kind of digging into this topic so i'm very excited about this book book very excited about what you guys are doing and uh, thank you so much for being on in the in the trenches
1: oh tom thanks so much you asked some great questions you've had a great community already and uh, do i hope folks will reach out we'll look forward to uh, chatting again take care
0: And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you'd like to check out the show notes, just head over to tommorcus.com slash podcast where you'll find the latest broadcast. And if you enjoyed today's broadcast, please do me a favor and leave a rating and review on iTunes. That's the fastest, simplest, easiest way to support my creative work, and it would really mean a lot to me. As always, this is Tom Workus, and if you're listening to this, you are the resistance.